Since the late 1920s, Camp Scott in northeastern Oklahoma was a retreat for Girl Scouts to play, learn, and grow in the great outdoors. But on the night of June 13, 1977, it was the scene of a grisly murder that left three girls dead and a community terrified. The victims, 8-year-old Lori Farmer, 9-year-old Michelle Gousset, and 10-year-old Doris Milner were killed in their sleep as their friends and camp counselors slept just a few feet away. They had arrived just the day before they were killed and were getting ready for a two-week trip at the camp with their friends. A counselor found all three bodies scattered along a trail leading to the camp showers wrapped in their sleeping bags. The rest of the girls were sent home without being told much, but learned of the murders when they reunited with their parents who were praying their daughters were not killed. Hey, what is up everyone? Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles. I am Donnie, your host, and with me is a man that says, there is no masculine way to ask his wife, honey, Will you pass me the Girl Scout cookies? It's Dale. <laughs> Just give me the whole damn box. Yep. That's the only way you can do it. I mean, the box is a single serving. That's right. Yep. What's your favorite? Oh, man. I like a lot, I like a lot of them. I like the peanut butter sandwiches, the the Thin Mints. Um, and Caramel Delights. Yeah, Caramel Delights are good, too. Mm-hmm. I like a few of them. Yeah. Even a knockoff Caramel Delights are pretty good. Yeah. Do that and peanut butter sandwich. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. peanut butter sandwich is good. Yeah. But I don't know why they put a closure tab on them. No, no sense. I mean, because you open it, it's getting thrown away when you're done. Is it made with real Girl Scouts? I don't know. Is I it? Just wonder. No. I never read the ingredients. I don't know. <laughs> What's going on today, dude? Oh, doing, doing well, doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing well, too. Awesome. I am doing well. Doing well. Doing well. You got water out in that well? No, it's dry. It's bone dry. <laughs> but it's a deep subject, so we won't talk uh, about it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you got any good shout-outs for us or anything? Man, we got one, 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 five-star. And uh, we want to thank uh, 121664 for, uh, we appreciate the love, man. Is that their Apple username? As far as I know, 121664. Hmm. Well, thank you, 121664. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. And uh, we'd like to wish our old buddy, Melissa Brackman, uh happy birthday. Her birthday is just the other day. I think she turned a big 5-0, didn't big she? Big 5-0, yeah. Yep. And she's our buddy, and she's pretty cool, and we just like to sling her a birthday wish. Yeah, happy birthday, Melissa. Hope it was good. Yep, we appreciate you and the interview you gave us. Yeah, it's cool. Yep, awesome lady. Super, super nice lady. Yes, sir. Yep, and I want to thank uh, David Gant yeah. last week again for his generosity and letting us interview him. Yeah, that was cool, man. Yep, great guy. Good dude. And if you're listening, David, I've, I've got you some stuff sent out, and I'm going to get you a T-shirt sent out very shortly. Shortly? Yeah. What if he wants a long one? Well, I've been, <laughs> I've been busy and doing things, but I'm going to get it out. I did get him some, some other merchandise sent out, so I'll get him some other stuff sent out, T-shirt and stuff. Well, that's cool, yeah. man. If anybody wants to leave us a rate and review, go on to Apple Podcasts and click that five star. Please do. Yep. And if you want a T-shirt, go to the website and click on the store page. Get you a T-shirt. Represent the crack house. Hard to interview. We'll give you one. Yeah. If you <laughs> if you know a crime or if you're related to a crime, give us a holler. We, we'll, we will hook you up. We will interview you. Yeah. We'll they, give it a shot anyway. Yeah. We'll call interview. We, yeah, have we'll, a, we have a little chit chat. So yeah. About we'll, interview. we'll talk to you. We'll talk to you about something. <laughs> or we'll just talk about anything. That's right. All right, man. We got a we got a good case this week. Ooh, we do. Yep. And it's a little bit different. Well, all of our cases are a little bit different. Well, we'll make it different from not. But this is the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Oh, that's why you're tricking me in them cookie questions. Yeah, I thought the Girl Scout joke in there, but this uh, this story <laughs> ain't a joke. No, this story's no joke. I mean, it's I mean we kid around and, and goof off, but you know it's, we get serious with this here. So yeah, this is definitely a trigger warning story. Yeah, and we don't ever say that, but you know this one's got to involve some kids. So just so you know. Yep, and this happened in 1977. 1977 at Camp Scott. Camp Scott, they opened up in 1928 as a Girl Scout camp. And it's located just a few miles south of Locust Grove, Oklahoma. And in 1977, uh, about 50 years after they had opened up, it was being run by the Magic Empire Girl Scout Council. The Magic Empire. Yeah, and it had grown to include 10 campsites, a great hall, and a swimming pool. And it was on 410 acres on the left bank of the Snake Creek. And Dale, each campsite was placed near the main thoroughfare, which was called the Cookie Trail. Well, that, look at that. Yeah, the Cookie <laughs> Trail. And the sites were given 
Native American tribe names that consisted of canvas tents that were on wooden platforms. And these were roughly set around a stone encircled campfire, you know, right like right in the middle. Right. And the tents had enough room for where there could be at least four girls per tent. Right. Yep. I think it were the platforms were what, like uh, 10 by 12 or something like that? Yeah, wooden so, platforms right. that, are, that were up on blocks. And then you had a, a, a metal frame and a tent uh, stretched over that metal frame. Yeah. That's pretty much the way they, they work. And those tents were old-style, old like a canvas tie-front tents. Flat canvas with ties. No zippers, right? No, nothing. But they were big enough to house four girls, four cots. That's pretty pretty good-sized yeah. tents. You know, especially if you got all your your stuff and then plus four girls per tent. So. Right, and I think they were going to stay for two weeks, right? So you'd, you'd have a pretty good bit of stuff, you Yeah. Think. Now, on June the 12th, Around 140 Girl Scouts, they left the Magic Empire Council building there in Tulsa, Oklahoma, headed to Camp Scott. I think Tulsa was like 40 miles from Camp Scott, something like that. And three counselors, their names were Carla Wilhite, she was 18, Susan Ewing, she was 18, and Dee Elder, she was 20. They were assigned counselors to the Kiowa camp, and they were in charge of looking after 27 girls. Okay. Now, all these... So, I'm guessing uh, they have these 140, they're all different camps, guys, right? Yeah. They split them all up, okay. Yeah. And I think the Kiowa camp was the camp for the younger girls, everything I've read and heard. Okay. Now, in this Kiowa camp, there were three girls in that camp. Uh, their names were Lori Lee Farmer. She was eight years old. Uh, Michelle Heather Gousset, she was nine. And Doris Denise Milner, I think she was ten. And I think Doris, or I think she went by Denise, yeah. she, she had been there before. I think this was her second year there. Right. And But the other two girls, they had never been to scout to camp. camp right? No. But they were assigned to the Kiowa camp, and they were to be in Tent 8. I think I think these girls were kind of like the, the leftover. They weren't assigned to anything. Yeah, because I think they let all the other girls pick whoever you want to, your bunk mates to be, and they were the – kind of the ones that got left out because they, they didn't have friends there because they'd never been except yeah. that one girl you know yeah but they these th- three girls quickly became friends yeah and we'll talk about that in just a little bit later but yeah, they were assigned tent number eight in the kiowa camp this tent is at the very end of a row there in the camp they the they formed like a half circle yeah around the shower house and then there was a little a campfire ring there, near there. But their tent was straight across from the counselor's tent, and it was being blocked by the shower house. Right. It was out of view of the counselor's tent. Right. So it was basically like a semicircle with the counselor's tent being one, and then they'd go clockwise, two, three, four, and then say, say if it was like looking at a clock, the counselor's would be at the nine o'clock, and their tent would be at the three o'clock. Yeah. And then the shower house would be right in the middle where the dial is. So if you couldn't see directly to their tent, you'd have to look through the shower house. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, Does that you, make sense? Yeah, you cleared yeah. that up very well for me. Yeah. I was trying to figure out the best way to explain that, but that's pretty much it. Their tent was being blocked by the shower house. Right. From the yeah, and then the fire pit would be like at the 6 o'clock, so it's kind of weird how it's kind of set up. But but it, it wasn't really – I don't think it was intentionally done to where they couldn't see it. It was just probably add-ons here and there, and then just happened to be where it kind of got blocked by the shower house because mm-hmm. they wanted it to be in a central location. Yeah. Now, I think Lori Farmer, I think she was the youngest girl there yeah. at the camp that year. Yes, she was. Yeah. And she had the choice of going to a YMCA camp or a scout camp that year. Yeah, and she couldn't decide. I think her mom made up the, her mind for her yeah. that, uh, you know, we'll just send you to Girl Scout camp. We'll go to this one this year. Yeah. And, and she was a brilliant little girl. She was really, really smart. She, she had skipped second grade, and she was like really is, I think, Basically on the same level as a tenth, ten-year-old. Uh, ten-year-old. Yeah, yeah. And she like was really smart and taught herself a lot. Of really read books and stuff. It was mm-hmm. it was crazy. I think her dad was a doctor. Yeah, yeah. So they she came from a, a pretty good family. So she was pretty well educated. Now Michelle Gousset, she was nine and she had never been to camp before. And I think she was 
a little apprehensive about it. I don't think she much wanted to go. Well, I think she really wanted to go at first because she had saved. I think she was the one who uh, sold a bunch of cookies and stuff and saved up the money to go. And her and her friends were yeah. going to go. You had to be yeah. able to pay. And then uh, right before they got ready to go, all her friends bailed out or didn't want to go. Yeah. So you know how that is when you're getting ready to go and all your friends are back out. Then you don't know if you want to go or not. But I think her mother was basically like, look, you worked your, you bust your butt this year to save up money. You mm-hmm. should go. If you don't like it, I'll come and get you. But at least go try. Yeah. You know. I said after the first night, if you don't like it, I'll come and get you. I'll come and get you. But, you know, you worked really hard to earn to be able to go to this thing and I think you you'll probably have fun. Just give it a shot, and if you don't like it, I'll come get you. Yeah, yeah. That was pretty much the deal. And the other girl, their other tent mate was uh, Denise Milner. She had been to camp before, and I think she you know she was excited about being there because you know she'd done it before and apparently had a good time. Yeah. Now I think now Donnie wasn't there a, a fourth girl that was going to be in their tent, and somehow another she got or went to bed with some other girls or a different tent. Or yeah, something. I think it was a clerical error that she got put with another troop. Uh, to be put in another campsite hmm. and it was like i think it was a clerical error and they said the next day yeah they weren't going to bother them because you know when they, it was that late when they figured it out and they weren't gonna they wait the next day and straighten it out well there was a stunt thunderstorm come up that evening too and they yeah. didn't want to move any gear or anything like that in the rain so right. they let her stay where she was at in another campsite and said we'll just get you straightened out tomorrow you, right. just, you stay in that tent tomorrow we'll move you to the kiowa camp where you're supposed to be with the the lori farmer Denise Milner and Michelle Gusset. Yeah. So she was in another campsite. Right. But now, like I said, there was a, a thunderstorm hit that night. And the girls had left the dining hall. And I think the counselor just told them, you know, just go back to your tent and settle in for the night and write letters home and just get to know each other. Yeah. Yeah, it was like right after, I think, they ate, right? Yeah, just right after they ate, I think. Yeah. But they uh, went back to the tent and they was writing letters back home, sort of getting to know each other before they went to sleep. And it was sometime before 10 p.m. This was on June the 12th of 1977. The counselor of the Comanche camp, they saw a light in the forest. It was sort of moving north towards the Kiowa camp, but she wasn't sure what it was, Dale. And at 10 p.m., D. Elder, she was one of the counselors in the Kiowa camp, she made a tent check of the girls in the camp. And she pretty much satisfied herself that everything was fine. Now, two hours later, this was around midnight, Carla Wilhite, she escorted some of the girls from the latrine back to their tents. I think they were in there goofing off and being just being girls, you know. So she took them back to their tents. So latrine, that's basically our house. Yeah. And, it's, it, and went, it, it wasn't very big. No, and it wasn't close by either. It was, no. Yeah, you had to walk to go to the bathroom. I'll tell you what, in the middle, this place didn't have no power, right? Or did it? No, there wasn't no power. So. You had to take a lantern. Take a lantern. And from looking at the maps, the latrine is kind of out there by itself. Yeah. It wouldn't be, it'd be kind of creepy to me. And the girls in tent six, they were warned by Carla to stop making noise at around 1.30 a.m. And at the same time, Carla heard a strange noise coming from behind the tents. And it she described it as a low guttural sound which is weird yeah but she wasn't sure what it was an animal or a human and she shined her light in that direction and it stopped and then she returned to her tent and went to sleep but she continued to hear noises intermittently and wasn't sure what it was now around 3 a.m there were two reports of girls in other camps being woken by noises and one report is of a single scream around 1 a.m. and the other of a girl crying out for her mama. Mm. Yeah, that would weird me out. Yeah, that would be very, very creepy. Yeah, I was looking on a map, and a lot of these campsites, it's hard to tell by a map because there's not a scale on it, but they don't look like they're too terribly far apart. Yeah. Yeah. But around the same time, someone was moving through the Kiowa camp, reaching into tents, stealing items, purses, and several pairs of prescription glasses, which was weird. And this is be what about three in the morning? Yeah. Wow. And you know these, like I said, these tents, you know, they weren't locked up. They were zipped up. They just had a, a tie down, so you could reach through, and right and rummage around if you wanted to. That morning, around six a.m., Carla Wilhite, you know, like I said, she was one of the counselors there. Her alarm went off, and she got up to go shower before the girls got up, and she was headed towards the Quapaw Camp and the staff house. 
Right. She was going to go get a shower up there. Yeah, not in the, the little shower house we were talking about. Yeah. No. And as she did, she spotted something like right off the trail, like in the fork of a trail. And she was, I heard it reported that she had thought it had been some gear that had been dropped off and wasn't picked up. Right. Somebody left her stuff there. Yeah, just left stuff there or something. And as she approached it, she suddenly made out the body of a girl lying mm. next to the, the gear. And the girl was face up and naked from the waist down. Right. She pretty much realized that she had discovered a body. Oh, yeah. I mean, right away. And Carla immediately woke Dee and Susan to help her check on the other kids. Right. So she just kind of freaked out and then run to wake up the other counselors and go check the tent so they can figure out what yeah. the hell's going on. Yeah. See and, who's in their and tents. And if somebody's missing, if this is one of their girls or what. Yeah. Yeah. And Dee, she started checking by, she started checking tent eight. And she discovered that all three of the girls in tent eight were missing. Yes. And Carla headed for the nurse's station and the nurse drives up to the Kiowa camp and Carla heads to the director's house to inform the camp director, Barbara Day, of what they'd found, Dale. Right. On arriving, the nurse was checking for signs of life. She was identified as Denise Milner and she was dead. Right. And she had had injuries to her hands and head and her hands were tied behind her back now richard day he was the husband of barbara they were the camp directors yes i think barbara was the camp director and he was her husband he arrived on the scene and discovered uh the other two sleeping bags there and they were heavy yeah they were all zipped up they weren't like they were closed up yeah because uh the one with Denise was laying on top of a sleeping bag. Yeah. And just kind of laying there sprawled out. Yeah. Mm. And they later confirmed that the other sleeping bags, Lori Farmer were stuffed down inside of her bag and Michelle Gousset was stuffed down inside of her bag. Right. And he got one of the bags, I guess the end of the sleeping bag, and laid it over the lower half of Denise, I guess just to save her dignity i guess yeah just, just, i mean it's it's not good for a crime scene but damn you know it's i can't imagine yeah me neither i got girls yeah <laughs> yeah so he just kind of did that to like you say preserve her dignity and barbara calls the highway patrol officer harold berry because i think he lived right near there yeah wasn't far yeah pretty close by now dale just to backtrack a little bit earlier in 1977 back in april they had an on-site training session there at the camp yeah and a camp counselor she had discovered that her belongings had been ransacked and i think she'd had a, a donut box or a donut bag yeah i think it was a box yeah and the donuts had been stolen but inside the empty donut box was a pretty disturbing handwritten note right and it stated in all capital letters that said, we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. And the camp director of the session pretty much treated it as a prank. Yeah, I think uh, what, who found it was like a, a girl who was like 15, and she was like a counselor in training. So, you know, she wasn't one of the older girls, but she was going to be. And she found it, and it kind of freaked her out, and she took it to uh, to the director, and she just threw it in the damn trash. Yeah. thought it was a joke. Yeah, I thought it might have been some of the... I think some, she was more pissed off about the place being ransacked than the, the note. And they even thought it might have been some of the Boy Scouts that were at a camp about three miles away. Right. They thought it was just just a joke. And I think some of her other stuff had been missing. I think she had some prescription glasses that were missing and yep. um, some other stuff. And a piece of that tent was cut. Yeah. And didn't they find a, 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 a place on one of the tents that had some uh, a place was cut out of it or something yeah that was on 10 8 yeah the back of it was cut too hmm. like we said harold berry he was a highway patrol officer was the first officer at the scene and found one set of boot prints leading from the kiowa camp to a spot where the body was where denise milner was right and the general scene was not secured much later Dale. they pretty much tightened it up and it appeared that the killer had approached 10 8 from the rear so these things have flaps on both ends, you think? Yeah, they have They have interest on both ends. Mm. And it appeared that the killer had approached the uh, 10-8 from the rear and hooked, unhooked the back flaps to get in. And the investigators believed that Lori and Michelle were both bludgeoned to death inside the tent. 
because there was a lot of blood spatter. Yeah, on the walls and the floor. It was a good bit in the floor. Yeah. And they were both sexually assaulted. This is one thing that I don't get. You know, everybody says that I've, I've listened to and heard that and read they they tried to clean up the blood using the bed sheets. But I don't think he did. I think he was just wiping up evidence, you know, footprints or whatever. I don't right. think he was trying to clean up nothing. Yeah, because it doesn't make sense. No. So he's just wiping up. You're just smearing it around a little bit. I mean, yeah. With a sheet, ain't going to clean it up anyway. No, I, I would just get rid of footprints or evidence or something. Right. But one single boot print was left behind, and it was a size nine and a half. Nine and a half. But they didn't find any fingerprints inside the tent. So I just really wonder how how good this stuff was processed being in 1977. I'm sure it wasn't too good. Yeah, people walking around everywhere, man. Yeah, I think even one of the feds left a palm print, some other stuff on Yeah. So it, was a, it wasn't that great of a process. But during this time, they had 140 girls still at camp. Yeah. And they had three dead girls on their hands. Yep. So they quickly was getting the girls out of camp. Yeah. They were calling parents, telling them that they, I think they were telling them it had been an accident. Yeah. And they were going to send the girls home. Yeah. And I think they were telling the girls there was something, uh, a problem with the water. Because they didn't want them to know nothing until they got them out of there. Yeah. So I think pretty pretty early those, especially in that camp, I don't know about the rest of the camp, but pretty early in that camp, they, they had them all on the buses and cleared out Yeah, to go back to the to the main place. And I think they told the parents that they were uh, sending them back home, they'd been in an accident, and they could pick up their girls at the Magic Empire office. Right. Yeah, and you got, you got parents waiting there at the at the office. You know, not knowing anything. Not anything. Because this is 1977. There's no social media or nothing. No. So you don't know what's happening. And then the three girls, I think they, when they finally got hold of their parents, they told them that, you know, something had happened and their daughter was dead, but, but that's all they would tell them. They told me it was, it was an, an accident. accident. Yeah. And no, no more details. Yeah. Yes. And they learned about their daughter's death on the news. Or learned what, what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, more or less. On the news, man. On the damn news. How crazy is that? Hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine standing there waiting on your child to get off that bus. Yeah. I can't imagine, man. Now, Denise Milner had been bound and her mouth stuffed with a pre-made gag before being walked over to the area where the bodies were eventually found. She was sexually assaulted, bludgeoned, and strangled to death. I think she had a ligature around her neck. Yeah. So the other two were killed inside the tent, and she was walked out. Yeah, I think the other two in the tent were bludgeoned on the head they didn't know what hit them right and they were stuffed in their bags and drug out and yeah, well, they said they were both sexually assaulted so you think that was post-mortem I would, I would imagine yeah hmm. yeah and there was a lot of stuff done to these girls but we don't want really to get into too much yeah but now the tax had definitely been planned in advance the yeah. gag on denise was pre-sewn and the killer had also brought along a nylon rope yeah. and duct tape for binding them up and semen was found on each of the body and the red flashlight was found next on Dale right it's like one of them big box type flashlights it was like uh, what six volts it was yeah. Called. Took, yeah. Them, took them big batteries with the big click button on top yeah click click <laughs> and there was a hair caught in the duct tape and it did not belong to any of the girls you know that was on the right it didn't belong to any of them and the autopsy found that the weapons used were held in both left and right hands. And it was also evident that there was more than one weapon used in the bludgeoning and two different knots had been used in tying the girls. So that would make you think there's two two people doing this. Yeah, especially if, you know, we, me and you talked about this earlier. Yeah. Especially them leaving a flashlight behind. Yeah. Getting back to wherever they come from. They, you know, it's, you know, it's pitch dark because it had been raining. And there wasn't no moonlight or nothing. So it'd be, it'd be pitch black to be able to get back mm. to wherever they came from. So that, that makes me believe there are two, two people involved or more than two. Now, the rope and tape had recently been stolen from a farm. It was about a mile away from Camp Scott. And the farmer's name was Jack Schroff. And he had an alibi and also passed a voluntary lie detector test. Now, this guy, Jack Schroff, this farmer, he went through a lot of 
hell. Yeah. Well, you know, he said his place has been broken into a lot, you know. And then uh, when he said this stuff here had been stolen from his house, they're like, well, wait a minute, because they found, you know, uh, I think some more of this, uh, the cord and some tape and stuff that kind of matched up with his stuff. They're like, no, where the hell are you? Mm-hmm. But then he passed everything. But I think then the newspaper posted a picture with him with the word Slayer over, over yeah. his, after he had already been cleared. Yeah. So, yeah, that was, that so, was bad for him. Yeah. So that was kind of shitty. Very shitty. The newspaper. Mm-hmm. And they even checked the camp director out. They checked the ranger. Yeah. They all they cleared all of them guys. Yeah, because he was the only man supposedly on uh, on the property. Yes. And but, he was like a ranger, but he was also like a part-time counselor slash handyman, I think. Yeah. I think his name was Ben Woodward. But they cleared all them guys. But then they had another guy that was on their radar, Dale. And his name was Gene Leroy Hart. Right. But it was kind of weird how his name come up, you know, because they're trying to figure out what's going on and stuff, and they really don't have uh, much going on. And all of a sudden, it, uh, the sheriff pops up and goes, well, how about Gene Leroy Hart? Yeah. Like, well, what do you mean by what, what about him? Yeah. Now, Gene Leroy Hart, he was 34 years old at the time of the murders, and he had been on the run since 1973. Yeah. And he had escaped from the Mays County Jail. Twice. Yeah. And he was from this area. He was raised about a mile from Camp yeah, Scott. Yeah, his mom's house just right up the street. Yeah. And uh, it was, a lot of this was Indian land, like you said, you know, you know, reservation land. And he was a Cherokee guy. And he was Native really, American Cherokee, yeah. Yeah, and he was a uh, real, he was a woodsman. You know, he, he could live off the land. And he knew this place like the back of his hand because he grew up there and was here all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But in 1966... He abducted two pregnant women from outside a nightclub, and he drove into a forest on the like a, the yeah. outskirts of Locust Grove. Yeah, threw them in the trunk. Yeah, and he raped them. Yep. And he had been convicted. Raped and sodomized. Yes, and he had been convicted of kidnapping and the rape of the two women, as well as four counts of first degree burglary. Yeah, he stole their glasses too. Yeah. While he was driving, he was wearing their glasses. Made them give them their prescription glasses. Yeah. Yeah. He got a he had a fetish for glasses. Yeah, that's kind of weird. weird. Yeah, that's weird. And you can see look up pictures of him online or something and he has some of the weirdest glasses. Got some horn rims on. Yeah. Yeah, he's kind of a it's whatever, I guess, but He's kind of a weird dude. Unless he just really needed some glasses and he's steal everybody's glasses till he find one he can see through. I don't know. Yep. But the women were bound with duct tape and rope, and after the rapes, in an attempt to murder them, he closed off their noses and mouths with the duct tape yeah. and left them to die in the woods. Yeah, covered them with branches and left them to die. Yeah. But fortunately, the women managed to untie themselves and get away and get loose. Yep. They described Gene Leroy Hart as being incoherent during the rape and that he made a strange growling noise. Mm. And when that guttural thing, again. yeah, and a possible link to the strange noises heard the, in the woods, yeah. yeah, the night that these um, Girl Scouts were murdered from 10 to 8. But in 1973, Hart escaped by sawing through the bars of his cell window. I think he had a hacksaw. He had a hacksaw. How the hell did he get a hacksaw? I don't know. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, he baked him a cake and put a saw in, I yeah. guess. Or a, he had a lot of friends, he had a lot of, um, you know. Uh, people who believed him around there that he didn't think that he would do some stuff like this. Yeah, and the the Cherokee people in that area, I mean, they they supported him one hundred percent. Right, he was like a big football star in school, you know, and everything, and they just couldn't believe that you know he could change that much because he's mm-hmm. like you know everybody liked him and he's you know a pretty popular guy in school and stuff. But yeah, I guess things change. <laughs> yep, and he was eventually recaptured and was known to have committed. Three burglaries in total, and each case the victims were asleep in their house at the time. And Hart eventually admitted to both of the rapes and burglaries, and he was sentenced to a total of 305 years as he had tried to evade the first trial. Hmm. He attempted to kill his rape victims and committed further crimes while on parole. But now, one of the things that, that gets me is the fact that Hart had escaped the Mays County Jail and evaded Sheriff Pete Weaver. And yeah. there's a lot of people believe that it was a, a personal vendetta. Right. So I think he got parole after 
after that rape thing, you know, just three or four years. Yeah. And then he's got caught for all these burglaries. Bur- easy for me to say. All these burglaries. <laughs> and then when he went back, that's when they gave him all these time. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so that's kind of crazy that he got, he got out just a couple of years for raping those two women. And then put him back in and he just gave him a shitload of time. Yeah. And he kept escaping. Mm-hmm. Crazy. And it was suspected that many of the, in the Cherokee community were helping Hart to evade capture. And at the time of the manhunt, uh, there was an Angie Jake. She was the editor of the Tulsa Indian News, and she said that Hart pulled the wool over the police's eyes for so long, and he frustrated them. And so when his name popped up, they blamed it on him. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. But, you know, could have been good reason for that. Mm-hmm. When they did the autopsy on the girls, they did find semen on the girls. Yep. And they did test it. But it was known that Gene Leroy Hart, Dale had had a vasectomy. Yeah. So that was one of the things that kind of, you know, was in his favor. Yeah, it was kind of a setback for the investigation. Yeah, yeah it was. There were two OSBI agents, and OSBI is the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. Right. Their two agents were Larry Bowles and Harvey Pratt, and they were both from the same tribe as Gene Hart, and they received help from a respected medicine man named Crying Wolf. And it was certainly a challenging time for relations between the different peoples of Oklahoma Dale. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, you know, people were trying to say that Hart was innocent of all this, and then you had the people. Well, you know, a lot of yeah. them were saying they were just blaming it on him because he, he was an Indian, he was a Cherokee, mm-hmm. and they thought they were planting evidence and everything else. So they were trying to protect one of their own. And then when these guys are ages come in, and they're from the same tribe, so now they're looked at as outsiders. But they're still just trying to get answers to what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's where a little friction's coming in between the people. You know, I'm sure they were called out for that. Yep. Now, tracker dogs were brought in after the bodies were discovered at Camp Scott, but they found no scent trail. And this forest, this forest area is so dense in parts that it was not uncommon for some of the 600 searchers to get lost. Hmm. I, can, I mean, I can imagine. I mean, it can happen. Right. But now in the mountains overlooking Camp Scott, uh, OSBI agent Arthur Limble, he found a cave which is like kind of like a rock outcropping. That's what I'm thinking it is. I don't know if it's a true cave, but right. yeah, he found some pretty unusual items in this cave. He found some red underwear, a picture of two women which looked like a wedding photo, and a newspaper were found along with a pair of glasses that belonged to a Camp Scott counselor. Hmm. Imagine that. Some more glasses. Yep. And a further link to the camp was made when it was discovered that part of the newspaper that had been torn out matched some of the inside of the red flashlight. Because in that flashlight, Dale, there was a newspaper folded up and put inside that thing, I guess, to keep the battery from moving around to keep contact. Yeah, that plus it wouldn't make noise, you know, because if you shake them around, that battery will bounce off the side a little bit. So probably put it in there to be more stealthy so just to, to clarify that you know there was a newspaper found inside that flashlight right no flashlight was sound was found right beside the bodies yes yes and in that cave was a newspaper found from the same issue newspaper now it was also on that flashlight you know i know several people seen the dim light in the woods but they said that uh you know when it was back when they were hearing the noises and stuff, and then even the counselor would shine their flashlight toward that light, and it would cut off, and it was kind of freaking her out. So she went on back to bed. And then when they found the flashlight, it had like a piece of a trash bag over top of the lens with a small hole. Like a in. slit cut in it? So it's kind of like a silencer for a gun, the way I think about it. you know. So when you turn it on, it just a small beam of light can come out. And I think they also found a piece of this trash bag in this cave. Yeah. So... It kind of all links it together. Just to be able to control the beam of light. Yeah. So, you know, if he was, especially if he's, if his guy was a, you know, a burglar and stuff, he, he's a pretty smart dude, I think. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're going to go in and rob somebody, you're going to need a light, but you don't want a super bright light. So you just, just enough to where you can see. Yeah. So pretty smart, really. But mm-hmm. as far as that goes. So I think, you know, there was talk that they found a, um, a fingerprint on that flashlight lens, but I don't think nothing ever came from it. I don't think it was either. The picture in the cave was made public, and a prison officer recognized the women in it 
from a part-time job as a wedding photographer. Right. Yeah, they, I think uh, Gene Leroy Hart helped develop the photos in prison. Yeah, they had like a photography course in prison, and so they were doing that, which is kind of weird. But So this uh, this prisoner off, prison officer was like moonlighting on the side as a wedding photographer and helping them let, uh, develop photos. Is that what was going on? Yeah. Think? Okay. Well, they had like a course, you know, so he was letting him develop photos, and so he just kind of snagged this one and kept it, I guess. So now we got – so that's really can link – Gene Leroy Hart to all this because he had access to the photo, you know, and then they found this other stuff on scene. So, mm-hmm. so we can kind of put it together there a little bit. But just just keep in mind, too, that this cave, Camp Scott, and Hart's mother's home are just right there near each other. It's yeah. all right there in that little area. Yeah, like a little triangle. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not talking about a great distance at all. No. So everything really pointing to him at this time. Yeah. Now, it's two weeks after the murders, there was a farmer reported that he had seen Hart on a hillside. And on further investigation, Agent Harvey Pratt found this formation and four fires and cigarette butts. Yeah. Now, him being a Cherokee native himself, Pratt, he recognized the formation, the cedar wood used, and the fact that cigarette filters were torn off as an indication of a native... Indian smoke ritual. Yep. That's that's crazy. Yep. And the butts tested positive for the same O-type blood as heart. Yep. And a boot footprint was found that matched the size of the blood print in the 10-8. But Leroy Hart was size 11. Yeah. And that was a nine and a half. Nine and a half. So unless he had some boots with a toes cut out of them, I don't think he's... <laughs> He scrunched his foot down in a small boot. <laughs> oh, two sizes too would be a little rough. It'd be rough, wouldn't it? That'd be pretty smart to think about it, you know, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Like a reverse Bigfoot. Yeah. And there was a, another cave that was found around a mile from the camp on the land of Jack Schroth. This was the farmer that we talked about that they posted his picture in the newspaper. A prisoner told police about his existence, claiming that he had met Hart there after the murders and this prisoner was 16 year old at the time and would later be convicted of killing his own three-year-old son yeah but it didn't appear that the osbi pursued that information as a suspect in the girl scout murders and there was a message that was written on the cave wall that they found and it had a, a weird date format that's used by the military and the prison system and the, in the UK. And the UK. Yeah. <laughs> the date had 77-6-17. Right. Which was the year, the month, and the day. Which, yeah. you know, is a little bit different than what us normal people <laughs> wrote. And then, but under that, the message was, the killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. Yep. Yeah. Which is kind of weird. Yeah, very weird. And like we got pictures of this stuff too. We're gonna post. Kind of weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because I don't mean even if even if he was the killer and he was hiding hiding in the caves. I mean, why would you do that? Yeah, I know. just bring the heat on yourself. So I don't know. It's kind of this plus finding all this stuff that matches everything is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Unless he was a hoarder, a cave hoarder. I know. I'm gonna keep everything that's gonna put me in jail. Now there were further incidents at Camp Scott and. Due to the size of the camp, it was hard for the law enforcement to, to secure it while they searched for evidence. And in the weeks of the mur- after the murders, a security company was employed to guard the camp, which had now been vacated of all the staff. Right. And according to the security guards, there was evidence that someone was still stalking the camp. Yep. And leaving footprints in fresh sand and leaving doors open that had been previously shut. Well, you know, it's probably just a couple couple guys out there. And if it's 400 acres and this dude knows the woods as good as he does, it wouldn't be too hard for him to get around a couple guys. Yeah. And they also spoke of seeing silhouettes in the dense woodland on multiple occasions. And sometimes the dogs were used to try to track whoever was out there. And there was one time a dog returned to the tracker and the dog had seemed to have been struck. Like he had hit him with something. Yeah. Yeah. And the guards began leaving threads tied between the trees, threads and wire. 
you know, try to see if anybody passed through that way. Yes, like cross the trails and stuff that way. It wasn't nothing big, but it was enough to know if it was broken that somebody had been through there. Yep. Yeah. And many occasions they would find the the thread or the, the string broken. Yep. So somebody was going through there. Mm-hmm. And it was one day the security guards returned to the Great Hall. This was their dining hall they had on at, at the campsite. And it was used as office when they found a bag that had been left by the door. And this bag contained pink socks and a pair of tennis shoes with the name Denise Milner written inside. Both the socks and shoes were wet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and But Denise's mother said that those shoes and socks, that those were hers, and they weren't sent back with her, her gear. Right, so these things just showed up. They just showed up. Nowhere. Yeah. Right. Now, Tom Kennedy, he was a deputy director of the OSBI at the time, and he said that the two pair of shoes were already in evidence, lockers. And he believed those found by the security guards were to be viewed as a separate piece of evidence, but nothing came of that lead at all. Right. So they didn't have nothing nothing to do with the two pair they already had. This is just something completely different. Yeah. But it's just crazy how much stuff keeps popping up, but nothing ever comes of it. After 10 months on the manhunt, Agent Larry Bowles had been working with an informant in the Cherokee community, and he discovered that Hart was hiding out with a friend named Sam Pigeon, and he lived 50 miles east of Camp Scott. Now, Pigeon was convinced of Gene Hart being innocent, and he let him live there in his three-room shack for the previous eight months. Right, so he was hiding him out. Hiding him out. And I think he was a medicine man, Indian medicine man or something. Yeah. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about him a little bit too. Now on April the sixth, nineteen seventy eight, the OSBI officers they surrounded the shack and they arrested Hart. And Bowles stated that as he cuffed Hart, he asked, You killed those little girls, didn't you? And Hart's reply was apparently, You'll never pin it on me. Hmm. But now he was living with this Sam Pigeon, like I said, he was a medicine man and he had They'd claimed that he had put a curse on the tracker dogs. On those three, yeah, those three special dogs they brought in. Yeah, the, it's supposed to be like miracle dogs or something. Yeah, and he had uh, put a hex or a curse on where they wouldn't track him. Yeah, said they, they would all die. Yeah, and, and two of them did. Yeah, one of them had a heat stroke, and then another one just all of a sudden ran out on the road and got run over by a car. That's crazy. Yeah. It's like, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, that, that Indian shit. Like I said, he's probably packed up and took him home for something. <laughs> something happened. Now, Hart was tried in March of 1979, and he was represented by Larry Oliver from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And his supporters defended him pretty good. Now, his supporters defended him so aggressively that his victims' families needed police escorts in the courthouse to keep them from harm. Well, I guess it's technically the victims because at this point we don't know it's his victims. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. <laughs> but can you imagine being the family of these little girls and being there in Tulsa and all these people supporting? Everybody's hating on you. Yeah. Yeah. And them supporting Larry Jean Hart. And they had, they had jars set up in stores to collect money, yeah. raising money for his defense. Yeah. And you imagine walking into a store and see a jar there with his picture on it. Help. Yeah, especially if that was your Help little girl they found in. The, oh yeah, I can't. I can't even imagine, man. The, the 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 hate. I mean, you know, and I know it's all circumstantial evidence against him, but it's a lot. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. But the defense clearly dismantled the prosecution's case, and uh, several of them was well. One of them was the bloody footprint in the tent was too small to be his footprint. Right. And the fingerprint on the flashlight was not a match. There were swabs taken from the girls, and they were not conclusive. And it was claimed that the hair was hearts, but it could not be proved. Right. Well, I think it was pretty damn close, but they were just saying technically that wasn't good enough to match somebody. Yeah, they didn't have they hair wasn't a, a big science back then. I don't no. think, and, and I don't think it is really today. But I mean, that's all they had then. Unless they could pull DNA from it now, but they couldn't right. do that then. They just look at them as if it looks similar. Yeah. Yeah. And they also claimed that evidence being planted to frame heart partially motivated by racial factors. Right. They claimed that you know, there's a lot of being a lot of evidence being planted. Yeah, I think so. And even there was talk of something, you know, they had went to uh 
that Sam Pigeons and they had played, they went through that place twice. And then uh, when they went back the third time, they found uh, like a pipe and some other stuff that was supposed to have been stolen from the camp. But they didn't find it on the first two times they went through. So it did look, kind of look fishy, you yeah. know, to especially the locals there going, well, you know, look at here, this, you know. So, mm-hmm. so you know, you can kind of see both sides a little bit if you try. If you tilt your head sideways a little bit and look at it funny. But, yeah. I mean, I don't know. And this guy was a hometown hero, so. Yeah. But after hearing all the evidence, the jury took only six hours to deliberate. And they found Hart not guilty of the murders. Not guilty. Although the local sheriff pronounced himself 1,000% certain that Hart was guilty. and But the jury acquitted him, clearly believing that he had been framed for the murders because of his Cherokee roots. Right. Yeah. And But as a convicted rapist and jail escapee, he still had 305 years of his 308-year sentence left right. to serve. So he didn't get convicted, but he still went back to, to the penitentiary. Yeah. yeah. So I just wonder if that was in the back of their mind. You know, either way, he's still going to be locked up. So what does it matter what we do to him? Right. Oh, probably. Especially if you lived in that area, which I don't know. I know it was like a six guys and six girls on the, on the jury. Mm-hmm. But, you know, did they go back there and go, look, we don't know. It's all circumstantial, but... Hell, he ain't going nowhere, no way. So we can say not guilty, save face a little bit with the community, but yeah, he's going away for life. Yeah, and that, by the way, there were no Cherokee natives on the jury. Right. Yeah. But still, I, I, I think you're right about that. I think if it's he, very possible that they you know, kind of save face, but they know it don't matter. You know, with all that big circumstantial evidence, and he didn't have any prior record at all, would he have gotten off? What do you think? Hmm. I mean, they had in back of their mind, you know, hey, he's going back to prison. It don't matter what we do. Right. He's still going for 300 years. But if he didn't have anything against him and they had all this stuff against him, all this evidence, you know, it'd be more. Yeah, it'd be a lot more to think about a bit. Yeah. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah. Hmm. I, don't know. I think he done it. <laughs> yeah. Well, him, I think maybe is more than one. Especially if he looked like he were bludgeoning with a right hand and a left hand. Yeah, because you're not swinging two different instruments and holding a flashlight and mm. raping somebody and no. sodomizing somebody and and you know and then they wiped all that stuff up that sheet and crammed it crammed it down in the sleeping bags. Yeah, I don't know. We'll get a little bit more of that. I'll discuss some of that when we get. All right. Now on June the fourth of 1979, Hart collapsed and died of a heart attack after about an hour of weightlifting and jogging in the prison exercise yard deal jogging's bad for you man yep but i think his it's been reported that his family everybody in his family had some type of heart condition it was like a hereditary heart he condition. was fairly young too right 34 mm. yep so hell we'll never know no but now they did do an autopsy on heart yes. and it was determined that you know we'd said before that he'd had a vasectomy yeah but it was determined in the autopsy that his vasectomy didn't take. Right. So he still has some swimmers. Yeah. And they did find sperm on the girls. Yeah. So and the, one of the things that got him off was that he had a vasectomy. Right. So it makes you, makes you wonder, dude. And just a little bit of aftermath, two of the families, they later sued the Magic Empire Council and its insurer for $5 million, alleging negligence. And the civil trial con- included discussions of the threatening note and the fact that tent eight was 86 yards from the counselor's tent. Right. When, and another thing about this damn Magic Empire stuff and, and the directors, you know, we know we said, you know, they called the families and told them that, you know, your your daughter has died in an accident or something like that. Mm-hmm. But what we didn't say is the call to the parents was the third call. The third call. They called their insurance company first. Mm-hmm. Then they called their lawyers. Yeah. Then they called the families. That's shitty. That's shitty. So, yeah. That's a cover my ass thing. And I don't, you know, you're not thinking about these little girls. No. They're just covering their ass. Yeah. So that's a lot of where all this shit's coming from. Cause, yeah. Yeah. That's just shitty. Sorry. Sorry, people worried about a dollar. Mm-hmm. The civil trial included discussions of the threatening note and the fact that tent eight, like we said, was 86 yards from the counselor's tent. Right. In 1985. By a three to nine vote, the jurors decided in favor of the Magic Empire. Right. Yep. And DNA what testing, yeah, DNA testing 
conducted in 1989 showed three of the five probes matched Hart's DNA. And statistically, DNA from one in 7,700 Native Americans would obtain these results. One in 7,700. Yep. And just a little bit later... Not too long ago, in 2008, the authorities conducted new DNA testing on strains found on a pillowcase, and the results of which proved inconclusive because the samples were too deteriorated yeah. to get a DNA profile. That happens a little too much, man. Yeah, it does, man. Anything else we want to cover? I just basically wanted to talk about um, about those where the bodies were found because, you know, we kind of went through that quick. Yeah. But, you know... They found the footprints in the in the cabin, mm-hmm. or the tent, I guess you should say. And then those two were killed inside. And then they took the sheets and tried to wipe blood up or whatever whatever was done, whatever reason. And then they shoved those sheets down into the pillowcase or to the um, sleeping bags, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, when they found the bodies, okay, they were completely on the opposite end of the place from where the tent was. So they would have to went from tent eight past every one of them all the way past the counselor's tent back out to the pretty much to the front gate. Yeah. And then, you know, so you, I'm thinking there had to be at least two of them, you know, because they found that stuff and the flashlight and everything else. Mm-hmm. But why do you think they carried them all the way to the gate? You think they were trying to, to haul them off? I think they were. Because why else would you do that? I mean, that was, what, 150 yards or something. Yeah. I mean, that's a long way for, to carry three bodies. I know. And I guess that's maybe that's – you think that's maybe why they made one walk. They carried they carried two and made the other one walk. And then they did what they did and then killed her there. Very possible. And then maybe it was later than they thought it was and it was maybe the sun's coming up and they just figured they better get the hell out of there and they didn't take the bodies. Or did they even have a car? You know, I know there was a report. Somebody said that they heard, you know, a motor vehicle running around, you know, later in the night. But I'm, I don't know about this time in the morning that yeah. it was reported. So it's kind of strange to me. I mean, this is a it's a pretty bad case, and there's a lot of shit going on, and a lot of stuff got stirred up with that racially motivated stuff, you know. So it kind of takes away from really from the victims. So I was like, what the hell is going on here, really? You know, because I think this – Whoever it was, whether it was this guy or another guy, they they were stalking this place all the time for a while. Yeah, yeah, because they were, you know, they knew their stuff in there, and you know, and messing up places, and then they heard them in the woods, and they seen the lights in the woods. So I figured they knew the that place pretty well. Yeah, and then they knew that that one tent on the end was kind of out of sight. Plus, which I wasn't thinking about easy access. If it's got a door on the back of it, mm-hmm. I mean, hell, that right there is. That's kind of freaky. Yeah. And, I mean, I know you know a lot more than this, too, because you're, you're big into this stuff and go to places pretty much similar to this. Yeah, I go to Boy Scout camp every year. And it's 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 large. It's bigger than this place, right? Yeah, it's thousands of acres right. that I'm on. So do you think about that a lot when you guys are out I do, there? I do. Or do I you think, think about it more now since we're all into oh, this? Well, I've, I've known about this case for years, and right. I, it, it's tucked away in my mind. You well, know, because you guys are out in the middle of nowhere, right? We are. We're We're – out there so your your tents are basically the same as this right but it's they're, i mean a newer version but it's still like on a platform it's on a platform the their newer tents that we have they're zipper tents they're closed with a zipper they're double flapped you have a bug net zipper right that, and then you have a, a main closure right that you can close the whole so thing so you'd still be able to get in it but it'd be a whole lot more noise and stuff yeah. besides just pulling a string and opening the back door yeah they yeah they have a um, uh, zippers on the one end on both ends oh you, yeah you can go in both ways and you guys are on the platform as well right? yeah up off the ground yeah and the tents that we're in are just a little bit smaller than this they'll they'll uh sleep two boys so they're like two people tents instead of four yeah people tents. yeah right. it's on a smaller scale but still pretty good size i mean right. you stand up in them and you know change clothes whatever you need right. to do so are are your stuff set up Kind of in a circle like this? Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now, are you guys the same way? Does like the counselor stay in one tent and then the guy, the UDI, all guys, so they're all yeah. in the yeah. same? Yeah, we'll have, we usually have two or three leaders and we're, you know, we put, we got our own special, our own tents that we're in. It's usually up top. Right. You know, and our, our campsite's on a little bit of slope. So, you know, we're in like the first three tents. Then they circle around the edge of the perimeter of the, the campsite. So you got some that's out of your view too, then, right? Oh yeah. So it's it's not nothing that they did wrong in this place as far as design. It just happened to be bad 
bad diamond on this ship. Yeah. And this guy was stalking them. I and they, they put them tents and them platforms where they can because of the lay of the land. It's not a flat area. Right. You know, they have to put them. Woods is woods. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, you know, you got hills and ground you can't put tents. You've got marshy areas you can't put tents. Right. And you have to put them where you really can. Hmm. And I get that because I see that all the time. Right. So, yeah, that's just kind of so – I'm glad a little insight onto that. That's, that's kind of cool. But uh, I'm sure – I mean, I knew it was nothing but these young girls out here. So this dude, knew, whoever it was, knew that he wasn't going to have much problem doing what he wanted to do. Oh, yeah, especially if he'd been stalking it, man. Yeah. So that was just kind of what freaked me out because, when we, you know, you look at the maps and stuff to see to where the bodies were found as opposed to where their tent was. It's total opposite end of the campground. And I just couldn't figure out why you would drag them out in the middle of take the chance to go and buy every tent. I know. To take them all the way out to the almost to the gate, it says, you know. I think they were, they had a car waiting out there. I think they did. And something happened. They got spooked. Then that girl got up. Well, she would probably hurt them and drive off if she would have, you know. But, yeah, I think. And they just, they left them, yeah. dropped the flashlight. And, and took off. Took off, yeah. Yeah, because they left a crowbar and something else too, right? They never found a murder weapon. Oh. They left the, they dropped the flashlight and a pair of glasses. Mm. That's what they found, and but nothing else. So I think they just got the heck out of Dodge. They got spooked and left, and I think they were two, or at least more than one. Yeah, I think so too. I don't think one person. I mean, one person could have done it possibly to drag two girls out with sleeping bags and then walk another one out. Right. I think it'd been tough and do all the stuff you did to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, he. I mean, he raped. Hart did rape two pregnant women, and was able to manage to get them in the trunk of his car. True. And these are grown women, so I mean, that makes you wonder about that. Yeah. But I don't know, man. You know, it being pitch black. It didn't rain. It was cloudy. It was no moon. It was dark. So I don't know, man. It's just sad, sad, sad. Yep. But to get back to the girls. Like we said at the beginning of this episode, the girls went back to their tent that night, Dale, and they were they were told to write letters home. Yeah. And I'm going to read a letter that was written by Lori Farmer. They get mailed to her parents. They just found it in her stuff that was going to get sent home. Right. And the letter read, Dear Mommy, Daddy, Misty, Jolie, and Callie, I have met two new friends, Michelle Gousset and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write to you. Love, Lori. And this is the eight-year-old? Yes. Wow. Eight years old. And they say that Lori's mom has so much guilt because, you know, she had the opportunity to go to a YMCA camp yeah. or scout Girl Scout camp. And she, she chose for her. The mother chose for her. I can't imagine. Can you imagine living with that? No. I mean, she had no idea this was going to happen. Right. And you, I'm sure, you know, I don't know if it's never happened before, but I'm sure you'd never heard of anything happened like this before, you know? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I can't imagine the guilt I would have of sending my kid there and they, they getting killed. How could you go on, man? I mean, it'd, it'd be tough. Yeah. Well, and then, uh, now, didn't Denise, Denise wanted to call and go home, didn't she? Yeah. She did. She didn't really want to go once they put her on the bus. She didn't really want to go. And uh, one of the counselors just kind of talked to her and told her. And, and even her mother got on the bus and said, look, she don't want to stay. You call me. Make yeah. sure she can call me. Yeah. Okay. said. And that night when they were going ready to go to bed, she wanted to call her mom, come get her. And they uh, talked to her and was like, just wait till in the morning. Give it, mm-hmm. At least give it till in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, damn. Yeah. So, if they let her call, it could have been different. And think about the one girl we talked about earlier that was in the wrong tent. Yeah. Saved her life. Yeah, it did. Wow. What something, could, what something, was, something was looking after her. Yeah. It was a, a more like, powerful force. And like the girls that were supposed to come with the, with the other girl and they backed out at the last minute. Yeah. You never know, man. Yeah, you never know. It's pretty sad. Pretty sad. Yep. And when, uh, one uh, last thing, Dale. There is a Boy Scout camp that is about three miles away from uh, Camp Scott, the Girl Scout camp. Right. And they were having Boy Scout camp that week. And they continued to have camp. I think they brought in special security. Like armed guards or something? Yeah, but they didn't send them home or nothing. They just, I mean, can you imagine staying at... No. No. (laughs) 
Uh-uh. But yeah, they the Boy Scout camp continued uh, continued on during this investigation. It's about three miles away. But that is the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. I've been wanting to do this case for a while. It's pretty interesting. It's still unsolved to this day. Yeah. And it's still an open investigation. Yeah. 40 years later. If you guys want to do a super deep dive, I suggest you go check out uh, girlscoutmurders.com, I think it's called. Yeah. Because there's a ton of information there and lots of maps and photos and stuff. It's it's a really good site. A lot of detailed information on that website. Yeah. So, yeah, go check it out. All right, Dale. We're going to get out of here, dude. All right, man. It's been a good one. We want everyone to be safe. Be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is the The Crack Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.